You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Who Decides What's Right or Wrong? By Alain Giorno. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you from the Ayn Rand Institute. This is a weekly series exploring life's big questions and the answers to those questions coming from the ideas of Ayn Rand. I'm Elon Jerno, and I'm your host this week. Our big question today is, who decides what's right and wrong? Now, how do you answer that question? Let me, let me put it a different way for you. Um, what if I asked you, or if a friend came and asked you, or if a younger sibling or your child uh, came to ask you, who's the final authority on questions of right and wrong, on what's morally good, morally bad? How would you answer that question? It's not easy. It's not a trivial kind of thing to, to come up with an answer for it. And I think it's a, it's a hard question. Uh, and it's an important one. Now, When Ayn Rand was asked this question many years ago, she pointed out that this is the kind of question that we have to challenge. It's a question that has to be questioned. So let's let's do that today. Um, Let's start with one interesting observation about this issue. Now, if I said to you, um, you know, who decides what's right and wrong? It, It seems sort of natural in the context of moral issues. It's not an uh, so off the wall question. People have this question. They ask it. You know, they try to find answers for it. But notice if we took that same question and we applied it to some other area of your life, it would be really, really weird, or it would at least be strange and and not at all the kind of question you would ask. So let me give you an example. So suppose that um, you're you're trying to get to work one morning and you go outside, you get in the car, and the car doesn't start. What do you do? Okay, so this is what I would do. I would call AAA, get a mechanic out, and have a look at the engine. And the last time this happened, the mechanic looked at it, he tested it with some instruments, he looked at different parts of the engine, and then he said, it's your battery. You need to replace the battery. And if we do that, the car will start. And I said, okay, let's do it. Put a new battery in. And then 15 minutes later, I turned the ignition and the car worked there was a definite answer to why the car was not working. It was the battery. And I think in in these kinds of situations where you're trying to solve a problem with your car, there's no no question of who decides what's right or wrong with your car or what the problem is. It's just a matter of fact. And and if you have the knowledge, if you're a mechanic or if if you learn enough to have the same kind of knowledge, if you retrace the steps with the same conditions, if you recreate them, you would end up with the same conclusion. You would reach the same kind of observation and you'd be able to test it. And w- once you test it, you'd, be, you'd know if it's right or not. There's no final authority that you would look to. It's here's the car, here are the facts, here's what we know about the way engines work. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even go to that kind of issue, who's the final authority. And again, notice that in morality, we, we find this to be a normal or kind of understandable question, but we don't in, in the case of a car that's broken down. Take one more example, even more complicated one, really challenging kind of issue. Suppose you want to launch a satellite into space. I met someone a couple of years ago who told me that 
you can, it's a lot cheaper to send satellites into space and they're a lot smaller and, and the technology is really advanced. So it got me thinking, what would it take to launch my own satellite into space? It'd be a pretty cool thing to do. Um, well, is there an authority that I need to turn to? No, that, that's really not the way to go. That's not at all how you think about these kinds of things. It's a hard scientific engineering kind of problem. But the, the way we, we, and we reach the answers to this kind of question are by looking at the relevant facts. Well, what, how big is a satellite? Is it you know, the size of a bread box? Is it the size of a car? No, it's, it's a really small one. Okay, well, how much rocket fuel will you need? And can you get space on a rocket? And do you, do you have the, the permissions and you have all the, 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 the um, equipment you need to get the, the satellite released at the right time? Uh, once it's reached the orbit and how much time will it take the rocket to get out of Earth's gravitational pull. All of these and, and dozens and dozens and dozens of other questions are solvable by knowing what the facts are, applying relevant scientific or, or engineering principles. And I, I'm not in a position to do that, but I could be, and you could be too. You could learn enough to solve this kind of question, know the answer, and it would be definitive. It would be a yes or no, black and white kind of answer. It would be objective. And you would be able to succeed in putting your satellite into space or not. It would be an, a, a clear cut kind of issue. Now for these kinds of examples, and you could multiply them thousands of thousands of other examples like this, there's a definite answer. And we, we know this if we take the effort and we, we learn what's needed to, to be known here, there's scientific knowledge, um, you know, sometimes there's a lot of math involved, but we can get to an answer and it's definitive and it's objective. And it's accessible to anyone who's willing to put in the effort and do it. There's no who decides in the case of, you know, in, in, in medicine, we, we can study the human body, we can gain the knowledge, we can reach firm conclusions about how to cure disease. We can figure out in, in engineering and in, in other hard sciences, we can reach hard objective knowledge about things. There's no, we don't have a recourse. We don't even think about having a recourse to a final authority. It's just a weird kind of perspective to have in those areas. Now, let's turn the question around. Why is it then that in the question, in the area of morality and questions of right and wrong, we do, and it seems natural and it seems fitting to assume or to think that, well, there is someone who will tell us that can be the final arbiter of what's right and wrong. Why is that? Why do we think, why do we turn to, why does it seem a common thing to have a final authority that we, we appeal to or expect to have an appeal to? Well, let's unpack this question of who decides what's right and wrong a bit more. And I think if we think about it, this is an observation Ayn Rand made. It's, it, it's a classic case of a loaded question. Now, if you haven't heard of this term before, a loaded question just means one that brings in an assumption or a premise that isn't stated. And if you answer the question one way or another, you're, uh, you're accepting that assumption or premise. So, you know, a, a classic example of a loaded question is, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? Just to take a, 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 you know, a textbook example. And if you say no, you're acknowledging and admitting that you have, you're still beating her. And if you say, yes, you have stopped beating your wife, you're admitting that until now, or at least until this, uh, you know, recently, you have been beating her. So either way, you're admitting the premise or the assumption that you are someone who beats their spouse. Now, if we take the question, who decides what's right and wrong, 
there is a, a really important uh, smuggled or assumed premise here. And that is that in the realm, uh, so the, in, you can put it this way, that morality is outside the realm of science and facts and reason. Uh, you know, another perspective on this is the, the, the loaded assumption or the, the assumed premise here is that morality is subjective. It's a matter of someone's decision. Some authority will tell us what's right or wrong. <clears throat> and and when, we, when I say authority, I mean in contrast to something grounded in facts and, and observational data and that is scientific. Now, where does this assumption come from? And I think uh, Ayn Rand's answer, and I think I, I agree with this from my observations, is that it, it, a major source for this premise that morality has to be, it's, so it's, it's outside, of more, outside of reason and, and it has to be uh, given to us or, or decided by some authority, is just the influence of religion. I think various religions, and particularly if you think Christianity, has a huge impact on the way people think of morality. Morality, in many cases, if you talk to people, what comes to mind is religion, religion and religious precepts and things like that. And if you, you know, what is the, the classic statement of religious morality? Well, the Ten Commandments, right? They're commandments, they're orders that you must obey. And the story that comes to us from the Bible is that uh, Moses was handed these, literally, um, he came down from a mountain with tablets inscribed with these commandments. That's sort of the, the, the literary perspective on this. So it, it's someone is telling us, and that someone in, in, in this account is a, a deity, a god. And, and that's sort of the ultimate authority who defines moral standards and tells us what's right and wrong. If there's any dispute, we can just go to that authority. Now, I, I want to share with you a, a, a story because I think it's really important to get how ingrained this assumption is and why the loaded question of who decides what's right and wrong it just kind of passes through and is widely accepted as well that's an obvious kind of question without real scrutiny so just a brief anecdote from from my experience just and the point here is to get just how ingrained this assumption that morality is the province of, of, sort of a religious authority and not a scientific phenomenon, not something grounded in observable facts. So um, the story comes from when I was a teenager and I was grappling with a difficult personal issue. I didn't know what I wanted to do in, a, in this conflict I had. And the details of the conflict are not that important. What's important is how um, my mother suggested that we solve it. So I turned to her and I said, you know, I, I'm not sure what to do here. What, what do you think we can, what would be a good path forward? And what's key in this story, which a, a key fact here is that my mother was brought up in a non-religious and in a socialist, hardcore socialist, Marxist type uh, upbringing. She lived in a, in a village that was a, a, a socialist commune in effect um, for her whole life until she, she was an adult. And that, you know, that left a, a lasting imprint on her. So she, here's my mother who's a secular, non-religious person, very left-leaning. Um, so, you know, in, in contemporary American terms, she would be considered a progressive in this, uh, you know, by these terms. And so what does she say? What does she say we should do? Well, she said, well, let's, let's turn to the rabbi. Let's get his guidance. And this seemed like the most natural thing in the world. It was not like, oh, I'm going to step away from my, you know, my socialist upbringing 
and I'm going to do something that's really out there. I'm going to talk to no, this, this just felt like the, the most obvious step you would take. A rabbi is a Jewish religious leader. Someone who's attuned with God's teachings and laws, and he's the nearest, mouth, nearest mouthpiece you can find to an the ultimate authority. And so we invited the rabbi over and we sat down, had a long conversation, and he told me what all the moral, moral duties were that applied and how he thought I could navigate this. Um, and this was all coming with, you know, he was not just some guy off the street. He's some guy who had some link in, in, in this perspective to an authority on what's right and wrong. Now, just as a spoiler, his guidance didn't help me, but that's a, that's a story for another time. Um, the point I wanted to stress with this anecdote is that even, so in my experience, and I think this is common, that even if you grow up in a secular uh, upbringing, a secular family, and in my mother's case, she was, you know, she was really raised in a, in a kind of hothouse socialist Marxist environment, very kind of um, uh, anti-religion in that perspective. The most natural thing was well, we don't know what to do. Let's talk to some religious authority. And I think this is something you can see in lots of people's lives. So that's sort of the part of why this assumption is ingrained and why it's not obviously noticed by people when you, the question comes up. And, and in fact, it colors the reason that we have this question. So I want to now turn to a really contrasting view. And this is Ayn Rand's perspective. Now, in contrast to the sort of received wisdom about morality uh, and the assumption that I've been exploring that morality is somehow outside the province of reason and, and necessarily a either an out uh, sort of a, out, um, offspring or a kind of derivative of religion or defined by religion, Rand has a very different view. She says that morality, in fact, does definitely belong in the domain of reason. It is in her view, in, in, in her particular morality. She thinks is, it's a scientific issue. It's a, sci it's a kind of science about human life. And I don't mean that in some kind of loose sense of science. I mean it in the, in the very strict sense of uh, an ordered system of knowledge that um, is grounded in facts and, and can reach an objective kind of truths and knowledge. Uh, and in her morality, she says that there's no authority, there's no final authority in these sorts of issues, just as there's no final authority in questions of scientific truth. What there is, is reality. And then there's, each of us has a, a mind that we can use and we can exercise our rational faculty to, to get a grip on the facts and understand them and learn the relevant knowledge reach conclusions and come to our own assessment of what's true and false. And in her view, morality should be seen as an objective science. Now, not every moral theory is, but it can be, and hers was. And this is, I think, a really sharp contrast with the, the premise of, well, we don't know what to do, let's ask some authority. That's not at all the view that she thinks one should have in life and that um, she has a whole theory of morality that develops a kind of scientific basis. And we'll, I'll mention a bit more about that in a moment. I want to just draw out one point from Ayn Rand's analysis of this issue that I think is really uh, critical to understanding or, or, or uh, getting past some of the friction. Because when I talk to people, and I say, you know, Ayn Rand has a moral theory and it's scientific and it's grounded in facts, it's empirical, it's database. 
there's a lot of sort of what you might call cognitive dissonance or there's friction because it's it's hard for people to compute how is this possible i've never heard of such a thing morality just is this thing out there that we understand and it's god-given or it's it, there are other kinds of forms of it the idea that it's so it's scientific or objective is hard for people to process so i just want to say a word about some of why that is and, and sort of help people overcome that or just see why uh, a way around it <clears throat> excuse me and i think one one key reason is that the way we think of objectivity, and this is a key point Ayn Rand stresses, the way we think of objectivity is, for many people, it's, it's a very weak grasp of the concept, or it's not, it's not a very firm understanding or a deep understanding. And, and you can see that because people have less trouble understanding that objectivity is possible in the sciences, the hard sciences, like say physics or in math, and it's just, those for many people are the archetype or the, the paragons of what objectivity is. But when you tell them, hey, the sciences that deal with human life, the humanities and, and um, questions of, of philosophy and morality, those also belong, that you can be objective in those subjects. People will just, they don't get it, or they don't think that's even possible. And that's because their concept of objectivity is just not narrow, is just not broad enough. They don't, they don't see its full scope. Uh, they think it's just this thing that, well, in the sciences, if we're lucky, we can get it, but that's it, basically. The rest of the, rest of the world and our experience is not subject to that. And Rand, her philosophy is called objectivism. And objectivity, for which she she wrote a lot about objectivity and, and really developed a distinctive conception of objectivity. For her, that is central to her philosophy. And it, 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 that kind of works its way through all the elements of all the key ideas in her thought, including emphatically morality. And in her view, morality is grounded in facts, and, and she has a whole account of that. Uh, and you can reach black and white clarity about what's right and wrong. And it, it, just as you can reach the same kind of, of understanding in the sciences uh, that are, that people think of as sort of the classic examples of objectivity. So her view is that object, the scope of objectivity is much broader than most people are willing to recognize. Now I wanna say just a word about what her theory is. That's not the main focus of my, uh, the comments I wanna share with you today, but I, I think it's important just to stress just to indicate a little about what she she thought about morality um now there's a lot to say here and i'm, I'm just touching a few points she develops a, a whole whole theory of morality to guide the individual and the central uh virtue the central idea the principle is follow reason be rational use your rational faculty in life to gain knowledge of the world and to gain knowledge of, of values. And from that, she builds, uh, uh, she identifies key virtues or uh, principles about how to achieve the values in your life. And among these are independence, pride, integrity, justice, honesty, productiveness. These are virtues that she identifies. And for each one of these, and this is, this is sort of the key point I wanna stress for each one of these principles and for the theory itself, they're grounded in observable facts that any one of us can look out in the world and observe and, and gather the evidence that she gathered 
and follow and to retrace the, the logical sequence from those observational facts to the, their implications, facts about human nature that is universal to everyone, wherever they live in all times and all places, facts about our lives and what is necessary for us to live. And we can sort of build up observations just as in science, you would build up observations of, of whether it's plants or animals, or whatever it is you're studying or of the universe, you would build up uh, observations and you draw conclusions. And the test of their objectivity, one aspect of that is, is it something accessible to everyone that if you have the knowledge, if you've gained the knowledge, you can get it and you can reach the same kind of conclusions, just as you can with the car, the example I started off with. And in her moral theory, it is. There is no, there's no authority that just hands down to you. Here, these are the six or seven virtues you have to live by. Goodbye. Thank you very much. It's not at all that kind of perspective. It's um, here are facts about human life and human nature. The, if you draw the inductive generalizations from these the way you would in any science, you would reach conclusions about how best to live, how best to achieve values in life. And sort of those generalizations become conceptualized as principles and virtues for how to live. And there's a whole system and it's a code of morality. So these virtues integrate and fit together as an actual theory. It's a developed perspective. So that's the key point I want to stress for you here and just indicating that she developed a theory and, and the theory's basis is inductive and it's accessible to anyone. Just as if you wanted to figure out whether Darwin's theory of evolution is well-grounded. In fact, you would retrace, you would look at the observations he made, you, you can recreate them, you could follow the steps, you could reach the same conclusions. And, and there's things, I mean, it's a very complicated theory, but the essential path you would take is, well, what are the observations he made? What are the conclusions? Do they follow, yes or no? And you would reach up to the point of having kind of the wide perspective that he does. With Ayn Rand's philosophy, it's essentially the same pattern. Anyone can look at the facts they're much more easily accessible than the facts of uh, scientific theories like evolution or uh, uh, theories in physics. But the key is that you can look at the world, you can draw the conclusions, and that is the basis of how you would reach objective knowledge about morality. Now, there's, there's a really powerful quote here that I want to share with you uh, before we wind down here. So if you circle back to the question of who decides what's right and wrong in morality, Ayn Rand uh, has this statement, which I'll read to you, quote, who decides in politics, in ethics, in art, in science, in philosophy, in the entire realm of human knowledge. It is reality that sets the terms through the work of those men who are able to identify its terms and to translate them into objective principles, end quote. So that's the, the key, one of the key points I wanted you to take away from today's uh, presentation that the truth in whatever area of life is open to us and in, emphatically including in morality. Uh, and the way we reach it is by using our mind objectively, you following a certain method, looking at the world, and it's emphatically not about obeying the dictates of any authority. That's not at all what we need to be doing in morality or in any area of our life. And in Ayn Rand's philosophy, this is sort of this, uh, a central point that it, your mind is capable of reaching the truth in any area using your reason. So this is a philosophy of reason. Let me uh, just summarize three takeaways that I want you to 
bear in mind from this presentation that I've tried to work in. So the question of who decides what's right and wrong is itself a loaded question that we must challenge. The reason it has such a grip on us, or the, the reason that the assumption that there should be an authority is there is that I think a big part of it is religion's influence on our lives. And it, it, it leads people to the, to the conclusion that morality is outside the scope of reason. And therefore, the, it's on the model of religion. Therefore, there's some authority we should turn to. And finally, the, by contrast, Rand originated a morality grounded in facts and reason. And it can provide objective principles to guide human life. For her, morality is a kind of science. And it has to be seen that way. It, it, does fall within the principle of objectivity if we take the right steps and, 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 and follow them diligently. So I want to urge you and encourage you, if, if this has uh, triggered some thoughts in your mind, and I hope you, you'll have questions in a moment when we turn to the Q&A, but a, a key thing I would recommend for you to do after hearing this presentation is to read Ayn Rand's own analysis, which I've been building on or drawing points from. You can find it in her essay, who is the final authority in ethics, which is available in uh, the voice of reason, but it's available for free on Ayn Rand, uh, on the Ayn Rand Institute's website, which I strongly encourage you to read. And, and her essay, I should say, is, is a much wider scope than my discussion about morality, though it starts with that question. And then to get Ayn Rand's own statement of her uh, uh, moral theory, read her essay, The Objectivist Ethics, which appears in her book, the virtue of selfishness. And again, you can find it on the Ayn Rand Institute website for free. There's both a, a written version and you can, you can listen to a presentation of it too. Two final suggestions for what you might read if you haven't already. Ayn Rand's novel, Atle Shrugged, is her statement of her philosophy in, in uh, fiction form. And then a, a book I can't recommend strongly enough is uh, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand by Leonard Peikoff. It is a systematic presentation of her philosophy. Uh, it, it, it's, where you, it's what you should read if you want to get to see the sort of the big picture and how all the parts interconnect as a system of philosophy. Now, let me uh, tell you who's going to be here next week. My colleague, Ben Baer, will be presenting on a, a very interesting topic. I'm, I'm going to be tuning in myself. The subject is, well, the, uh, the title of the presentation next week is, What's wrong with, quote, virtue signaling, unquote? And so the, the, the virtue signaling is, is in uh, scare quotes or, or shutter quotes. So what's wrong with virtue signaling? I think it's something all over the culture. It's, it's a topic well worth exploring. And I'm looking forward to hearing Ben's presentation on that uh, next time. These presentations we do uh, through Philosophy Living on Earth. Uh, we take your questions uh, and we love to get them. If you have a question you think we should be exploring in, the in, a, in a, one of these presentations, let us know. You can reach us by email, webinars at einrand.org. And, and by the way, all the questions you ask during the presentations or on Facebook or on YouTube, wherever you're watching, we look at everything, we, we collect them and we use them to generate new topics. So we definitely want your feedback. Uh, one final request before we get to Q&A, uh, we'd love to get your response to a poll on the familiar, on your, how, how much you know about Ayn Rand, how much you've read. Uh, we're always interested to know the kind of audience we're, we bring. 
and it just takes one click to answer. So I'll leave that up for a few minutes while we turn to the Q&A. All right, so joining me for the Q&A is my colleague, Agustina Vergara-Sid. Hi, Agustina, are you there? Hi, Alan. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you for that presentation. It was very clarifying. Um, I have a couple questions for you here. Um, is part of what you're arguing that at any given in any given situation or moral conflict, uh, you can know definitively who's in the right and who's in the wrong? Uh, for example, when your friends are having an argument or a dispute? Yes and no. So yes in that if you were able to have all the relevant facts, and I mean all the relevant facts and the context and the situation, and, and then I think in, basically you could reach an objective assessment. And the reason I say no <clears throat> is that if, even if you're part to the, a party to the conflict, it's very difficult to get all the facts and to parse them out. Uh, but let's say you, you overcome that and you do have the facts, then I think, yes, you, there's, there's a path to reaching some ass objective assessment of who's in the right and who's in the wrong. But it, the, the reason I want to, one point I want to stress is the topic of my presentation is sort of a wider perspective. It's like a step, stepping back from, okay, Agustin and I have a dispute over, you know, I lent you some money, you didn't give back to me, is this, what are you trying to do, and, or something like that, or, or you lied to me and I don't know how to evaluate that. And those are the things that one has to sort through, and I think you can reach conclusions about them. But the, 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 the thrust of what I wanted to get across in the presentation is that there's a, a wider question about morality, which is what's the basis for it? Like what, what is the reason for thinking that something is right or wrong? And that's a deep philosophical issue. And, and you know, in, in 15, 20 minutes, I, I, I'm just touching the surface, not, not digging very deep. And there's a lot to say, but the, the key thing is that this is a question that philosophers have been rethinking a lot about for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's, a, it's one where Ayn Rand has a, a, an original and I think profound and I think right perspective uh, that there is a way to think of morality as, as an objective science, as something grounded in observable facts. Um, and therefore, it, it's, a, it's the kind of set of principles that will help you in those concrete situations where you're trying to sort out, you know, what was the reason you, you know, what were you trying to do when you lied to me? Or did you lie to me? How should I think about you? Um, it, it gives you those, gu those guidelines. And the final qualification I would add is, um, and Ayn Rand is definitely in favor of passing moral judgment. She thinks it, it's crucial in life. And we had a presentation a while back on that topic that people can look up either on the podcast or, or, or on YouTube um, and obviously read her on, on why that's important. Um, but she also thinks that doing that is a significant responsibility. It, it wants to take really seriously what it looks like to, to form a moral judgment, the level of, the standards one has to apply for what is the uh, what counts as actually evidence and what more, what knowledge you would need to have about a given situation. Uh, so it, it's a serious responsibility. It, it can't be well you're going by your emotions and, and so well I don't like you right now. You're you're ticking me off. So I'm going to judge you in a way that's really uh, you know, I think you're a bad person. Go away. 
that's not a, that's sort of a caricature of what moral judgment is. So yes, you can reach objective judgments. Moral judgment is a significant responsibility. And then just sort of as a contrast, what I was trying to drive at with the presentation is the, the wider question, which I think is, is also important. That makes sense. And uh, I have a kind of a follow-up though, and you've touched upon this on your presentation, but if you could elaborate a little bit more, um, how can we reach around conclusions um, in areas in which we have no expertise on, like certain sciences, and we have to go by the opinion of, of an expert. And why do we, how do we solve the problem when there are like conflicting opinions by different experts on the same question or the same field? Yeah, I think that's a terrific question. It comes up all the time. And it, it, particularly because we live in, we're fortunate to live in an advanced society with, a, with massive division of labor to the point where people are super specialized and there's so much knowledge that is available and also so much that we need to, to kind of navigate our way through life. And I think the answer in principle is that we have to be able to find people whose expertise is objective, that we have a good reason for thinking that they're in a position to know and offer us guidance on a particular subject. So take a very simple example. Uh, you have a cough. Well, you can go to your friend next door, but there's no reason to think that person, like the, the person is a school teacher. There's no reason to think that person knows anything about the human body or sufficiently to guide you. Well, yeah, either this is bronchitis or it's a cold or no, you've got lung cancer. They're not in a position to tell you that. But if you go to someone who is trained uh, at a reputable place, has demonstrated knowledge, uh, there's valid reasons for thinking. I mean, I mean, someone who's a, who's a doctor, who's got some years of experience, there's, there's objective reason for thinking that this person is in a position to guide you on this. But then it's not, it, it's not right to think of when you talk to your doctor, it's, well, he's an authority, so I do whatever he tells me. It, it, what you need to do is once you find someone who's, whose expertise you think is objective, another necessary step what necessary condition is that you understand the reasons for, for why their conclusion, is, why they think their conclusion is right. And they have to be able to explain it to you. So if, if what they say is, no, it's just, yeah, you've just got a cough. And you say, well, why? Well, no, I'm a doctor. Just listen to me. You know, I'm an authority on this. That is, should not be satisfying to you. I mean, it, it, you should run from someone like that because that is, not a, that is a religious mindset, not a scientific mindset. What you need is, is sufficient reason to understand. So understandable in your own layman's terms, and he can show you, he, here's an x-ray. We've took a picture of your lungs. This dark patch is worrisome. We need to do a test to see if they're antibody, you know, maybe you've got cancer. We need to check your blood for that. There's other tests we have to run. Once we do these tests, we'll know whether it's cancer or if it's something else. Okay. So I have some base. I can see what the facts and reality would be if I were to if I were qualified to know all those things. And sometimes you might decide that, you know, this is why people have a second opinion because some of these things are really hard and you need more, you might lose confidence in someone's uh, expertise on a, a certain issue. So just to sum it up, you need some objective basis for, for, some, for listening to the person, like what credibility, what, what, um, 
what objective basis is there for their expertise on this subject? And then when they, when they give you their, their guidance or their conclusion, you should be able to understand it in, in your own layman's terms. And if you don't understand it, figure it out, spend more time or get someone who can better explain it to you. And if you don't agree with it, check it, like ask to see the, the details. So you want to get as close to the facts as you can without having to become a doctor in this case, right? Because it's just not, it's not practical for each of us to be a doctor and a lawyer and, and so on. And the same applies in the law. You know, you, you want to find an, uh, someone who's, uh, who's, um, credentials are objective in your eyes and who's and who can explain and justify what they're arguing um, and it's important to get that uh, so, so so that's sort of the, the basic answer I would offer on this there's a really interesting course that I think is available on the Ayn Rand Institute website on how to how to think of and, and apply the principles of objectivity in one's own thinking uh, I think the course is uh, uh, by Greg Salmieri, who, who does some courses for us. And, and he goes into this exact question. Um, how, I think that it's sort of a, a common problem of how to judge an issue where you're not an expert. So sort of, and, and not doing it in a way that is listening to an authority. So, um, so that's one sort of the basic answer to the question. One other thing I would mention, I would say is that uh, sort of a cultural political observation, we live in a time when the idea or the concept of expertise has been, is both widely challenged, disre disregarded, and cheapened by people from all sorts of directions. There's not one political faction that's uniquely responsible for this. So um, I think it's important that there is, that the people have a concept of object uh, of of expertise, and I can understand some of the some of the ways in which people are skeptical of experts because there's all kinds of arguments. Well, the experts said don't eat eggs, and then they said eggs are okay, and then yes. but, but you know if you get away from those kind of soundbite issues, there are deeper ones where you know there, there are hard issues where a given field of knowledge has been influenced by certain ideas, and it's it, it you you know, there's reason to be worried about whether the expertise there is colored some way. But the positive point is that expertise is a huge value. And, and, uh, and it's, a, and it's, while I understand that there are people who kind of are su suspect of certain forms of expertise, certain fields, I think it's really dangerous to, to kind of go along with this cultural trend that is uh, hostile to expertise and where, you know, doctors often experience this where a patient comes in and they've been Googling all morning and they, they think they know what they have and they just want the, the prescription. And the doctor comes in and says, well, you know, Googling it does not make you a doctor. It's great that you can find this information, but at a certain point, it's not, it, it, it is not a substitute for actually having trained for, you know, eight plus, 10 plus years as a doctor and having the experience of treating different kinds of disease in different sites. So, Expertise is a really important and valuable thing. One, one, has to be, one has to be really conscious of how to judge it and how uh, to, to, to parse out when, you know, what is your reason for trusting it and, and kind of separating out some of the concerns that are sort of floating around in the culture around that. I, um, yeah, so that's my uh, perspective on it. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it also, I think, goes to a point that Rand makes in the essay that you mentioned, uh, who's the final authority in ethics, where she says that one of the main things that separates us from other species and that makes man unique is that is the division of labor when it comes to knowledge. We don't have to know everything about everything. We specialize on something and uh, we can, like you said, we can judge what someone else is saying and not take it on, on faith. Uh, but the division of uh, labor and knowledge is something that is very important. And to what you said, like, if I go to the doctor and I have a cough and the doctor says, you have a cough, and I ask why, and he says, well, don't question me, I'm a doctor. Uh, and you said that's kind of like, if, if I don't, if I'm just happy with that answer, that would be kind of like a religious type of mentality. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that religion or, or a religion mentality is the only cause that people tend to think that uh, morality and, and, and knowledge in general come from some authority? I think it's, it's a major one, but I don't think it's the only one. And I, I, I didn't bring it up in the presentation for reasons of space, but and I think Ayn Rand may, in particular makes the point that it's religion, but also other kinds of influences. And I think the other, the category of the other kinds of influences, the, the major one she mentions is other philosophical thinkers throughout history who have, uh, I mean, you could say that their perspective on morality is similar to religion where it, it's, there's some authority, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a religious one. Uh, so she talks of, you know, she describes philosophical thinkers whose morality or a view of ethics is centered in, well, it's society that decides right and wrong or whatever is good for society is good. And, uh, you know, so, so one kind of view like that is utilitarianism, which, which is commonly understood by the kind of the slogan, um, the greatest good for the greatest number. I think that's one way it's been put. And that kind of puts morality into the realm of it's not, I mean, the thinkers who put, who, who have advocated utilitarianism will talk about it as a rational theory and it's grounded in, you know, we can see people have pleasure and pain. We can, we, but in the end, I think it's, it's a social theory and its grounding is in what is good for the greatest number and who decides that? Well, it's society. Well, society in Ayn Rand's view is it's an aggregate of individuals. It's, it's just a group of people who are living in a certain area and together it's not its own kind of thing. And yet these other kind of theorists view society in a kind of, well, it's an authority. Well, it's what people say, that's what we have to do. So I think that's another major uh, reason that morality is understood to be, well, somebody decides whether it's, I mean, sometimes Ayn Rand puts this as, well, it, it's either God or the voice of the people, which is just a secularized kind of God. Um, so I think those are other kinds of cultural factors uh, going on. And it, it's hard to overstate the influence of religion on people's thought uh, throughout the centuries. It's just, it's the, it, it, it's such a powerful, for, and I think for, for many, in many ways, really, really, really bad influence in sort of giving people categories and, and assumptions and premises about life that, a big part of what Ayn Rand is doing is pushing back on that and saying, look, 
rethink this or you know she often said check your premises and this is you know a, a, a good example of what it means to check the premise so here's a question people ask who's the final authority in ethics there's a premise here that you need to rethink and the premise comes from religion and from other sources but it, it's it, part of what she's arguing is to to guide your life by reason and have a view of the world that that you can have objective knowledge and objective guidance you need to think about the world and, and not take things as well. It's here. So, well, this is what we believe. It's just, it's given to us. You re really scrutinize what you hear and what you believe and particularly the views you've come to accept. Even you don't even remember how you came to accept it. And that's a big part of what she's suggesting we, we check and question. That makes a lot of sense. Um, we have a question here from Sam. He says, people start out in life relying on authorities, for example, their parents, to make judgments for them. Later, they encounter other authorities, for example, religious leaders or political leaders, wanting to, wanting and ex even expecting to make judgments for them. At what age, roughly, should one begin to rely on his own reason to make moral judgments? And how does he go about becoming self-reliant in this respect? Uh, great question. Um, I I don't know. I don't want to put a number on it, but as soon as you're uh, capable of doing it, so I think maybe, um, I think children develop a real interest in right and wrong and issues of justice, uh, sort of in their in their tweens and then moving into their teens, and it becomes something that they're grappling with. I think it's a common pattern. I think it's it it it's just part of mat the maturation process that they are concerned with these issues. So as soon as they sort of get their hands around it. But I, one thing I would challenge in the question is, while it may be the case that people look at their parents as authorities and the parents reinforce that, I don't think that's the best way to raise, I mean, I'm not a parenting expert, but I'll tell you, it's just from the perspective of philosophical perspective, thinking, I don't, for, for my kids, I don't want them to think of me as an authority in the, in, the, in the full meaning of what that means. I want them to think of me as someone who has greater knowledge and is guiding them and who's responsible for their welfare until they reach the point where they're fully independent. And I think the goal should, uh, you know, I think a, a, a sensible and healthy approach to parenting. And, and I think it's what you want your children to take away from their experience is, I need to figure this out, but I don't know how yet. And what my parents' role is to help me the best they can and, and guide me. And there's obviously certain things, you, you, um, there, it's not for the child to decide because they're not old enough to make that decision. It's the parent who has to step in uh, and, and make the decision. But I think in the process of doing that, one is, I think I feel a responsibility in, in my, uh, with my children to explain what the reasons are. So it isn't taken as, well, my dad is the authority. He said, I can't do this. That's it. It's, no, he says I can't do this. Here are the reasons he gave me, and I might not get the reasons, or I might only partly understand them, or I might disagree with them, but there are reasons for it. And I, as a parent, I, my, I feel the responsibility uh, is to, to model what it looks like to form a view and kind of go by the facts and be rational. So while it's true that people are raised in a way that, you know, mother knows best or father knows best, that that's not good and i wouldn't want that to be sort of the default position that well 
until you're old enough, you just take what your parents tell you on, on, on their say so, uh, or, or what the teachers tell you. And I think teaching, I think the parallel things apply in teaching. You don't want the child to say, well, my teacher said that this is how the American Civil War happened, or, or these are the, well, why? <laughs> I mean, what the teacher's responsibility is, is to help the child understand how this conclusion, if it is a conclusion, came to be, or what reasons there are for thinking this is a plausible view of some piece of history, or, or, and particularly in math. Like, you, you wouldn't take your math teacher's as an authority, it's, well, he has to explain to you why this, this is the solution that works for this problem. Um, so I think the, the principle is that um, you want, part of becoming an independent adult is, is gaining the, the knowledge necessary and the, and the ability to form these conclusions for yourself. And I think a, a good approach is to train the child through parenting and teaching and other, other ways to be on the premise that they're not looking for authorities. They're looking for, for evidence and reasons. And when, if that's really well established in their approach to thinking, then th that's great. That, that maybe it'll accelerate them in some cases, but they'll be in a, a really good position to then, when they're fully independent, make the decisions themselves because they'll know, I'm not just going to listen to somebody because he seems impressive or intimidates me into thinking something. I need to know why. There has to be a why for something. Uh, and, and, and I think, I don't know about your experience growing up, but it, it's, uh, this is, I think, just as an observation, I think this is partly why some, some people really rebel against their parents, because it's, it's unintelligible. <laughs> what you're telling me does not make sense. Why are you making me do X or Y? Uh, and I think this is not a universal thing, but I think in some cases it's, I, you need to give me reasons and you're not giving me reasons and there's sort of a clash. Now, there are obviously very many different kinds of cases. Yes, I agree. And I think that um, the classic, because I say so, quote, explanation is quite antagonizing at a certain age uh, when you're already capable of thinking and questioning things. So I agree completely with that. Um, regarding uh, morality and philosophy, Ren makes a point in, um, in one of the things that she talks about in uh, Who's the Final Authority in Ethics is that there's a difference between living by uh, philosophy and, and pleasurizing that philosophy or pleasurizing the ideas of others. Uh, do you think can elaborate on, on that a little bit? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. I worked with someone a few years, many years ago, and they became interested in Ayn Rand's ideas somehow, and they wanted to talk to me about it. And I don't remember the details, but the person's concern was, look, I, I like what a lot of what Ayn Rand is saying, and I get it, and I agree with some of it, but that's her philosophy. I need, my, I need to originate my own philosophy. And there's something just a little bit off with that because and she, this is one of the examples she talks about in, in the essay that you mentioned it, it, that kind of example. And it's the difference between learning from someone and, and having understanding the reasons why something is true and, and, but getting that knowledge from somebody else, not originating it. And we do that all the time <laughs> and it's a necessary part of living in a society 
uh, I mean, you have to do it correctly. You can't just take other people say, on their word, but learning from other people and, and applying in your own life is something we do all the time. And it's not the case that in order to do that, you have to be the originator. Because otherwise, where would you be? I mean, we wouldn't, I'm nowhere near capable of de developing any software, let alone software that lets us video conference live, broadcast to multiple people all over the world. So what would we do? Like I have to originate my own, so it's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, I, the premise there, I think, she, she makes a really interesting argument that links the, the premise behind that perspective with the premise behind the question that we were talking about earlier, who's the final authority in ethics. And for her, it's, it's I mean, go read the essay, number one. Number two, just a, one observation on that is, it's a deep point in philosophy that uh, the, while the, the topic she's addressing, starting off with in the essay is, it, it's about ethics and that was the focus of my talk. What she's really, sort of the wider point she's getting at is how to think about objectivity in knowledge. And, it, and it, it's crucial to get that it applies in morality, but it applies in other fields as well. Um, because it's kind of silly. Um, plagiarism is about pretending to be the author, the originator of some statement or, or piece of text, not just borrowing it and giving credit. So, you know, when I write things, or if I, if I, a lot of my thinking, so much of my things being influenced by Ayn Rand, and and I acknowledge that it's a big value to me. I would never imagine saying, "Oh, here's this really profound point. I originated and pretend that would be plagiarism, right? If if mm -hmm. it's something she originated, but it's very different um, from recognizing the source and acknowledging it and being grateful for it, and where there's you know, if you can pay the person they're around, you can go to their talks and buy their books and, so, and things like that. But don't confuse that with learning from someone and gaining the value from it. Um, there's a, so there's a similar kind of subjectivity, Ayn Rand argues, behind both questions. And I'll leave it for people to go explore that because it's a really interesting point. So that's in the essay, uh, Who's the Final Authority in Ethics? And as I said, you can find that on our website go just google it and you'll find it yes i think one good example of what you're explaining is uh ayn rand taking the knowledge developed by aristotle and building on that um i think that's that's a good instance of that she didn't claim to have uh she didn't claim the, the authority the, the being the author of aristotle's ideas but she built on them um Okay, I think we're coming to uh, to an end here. Um, so do you have any closing remarks, Ilan? Um, just thanks to everyone for joining us today. I will, um, I wanna tell people once again about the, um, the, the topic of next week. And uh, the, so, um, next week, we have my colleague, uh, Ben Baer, who will be here, uh, and he's going to be talking about uh, this topic. What's wrong with virtue signaling? Uh, I know we've been talking about virtue signaling a little bit, and Ben brought it up in a recent discussion here at the office. 
it's a really fascinating topic. I hope you'll join us next time. Uh, and if you are watching us on YouTube or, or Facebook or one of the other platforms, just to let you know, you can subscribe to get notifications every time we go live. Uh, you can join us uh, on Zoom and, and be interactive with questions. And we really hope if you have feedback or questions or suggestions, you can, you can write to us webinars at einrand.org. And we look forward to connecting with you next time. Thanks for joining. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.